Sometimes the most radical thing you can do is to be soft, to be nurturing, to be caring, to be empathetic, right? To keep your heart open, to keep your hands open. That's radical. It's radical stuff. It doesn't, it's not the smashing of things, the breaking of things, the, you know, the, the setting of setting fires. It's not. The, the most radical stuff is to lead with love in spite of, to be human, to remain human. When there's so many opportunities for you to be brutish or disconnected from your heart, to remain available is radical. That was writer, performer, and guest on One Symphony Today, Dominique Christina. I'm very excited for you to hear our discussion which covers craft and performance, the etymologies of words, the importance of learning from past poets like Edgar Allan Poe and Beethoven, and the relationship between artists and politicians. In addition to some amazing musical selections and discussion, Dominique shares two of her more recent poems, It's Morning and Praise Poem, at the end of the episode. First, let's strike up the band. Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. Dr. Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Hi, everyone. I am so excited and honored and privileged to have as a guest today, Dominique Christina. She's a writer, performer, educator, activist, mother, troublemaker, agitator, social commentator, star volleyball player, and was a high school and college teacher for 10 years. She was the National Poetry Champion in 2011 and Woman of the World Slam Champion in 2012 and 2014. Her books available everywhere include The Bones, The Breaking, The Bomb, A Colored Girl's Hymnal, Anarcha Speaks, and This Is Woman's Work, Calling Forth Your Inner Council of Wise, Brave, Crazy, Rebellious, Loving, Luminous Selves. Dominique can be found speaking online on TEDx and also on HBO's High Maintenance. Dominique, it's so awesome to have you on today. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You said you were an accidental poet and that in a Dickensian manner, you thought your grandkids would find your work in a closet after your death. What made you decide to share with the world now? Um, Peer pressure? Uh, (laughs) I just, um, I really didn't envision this for myself. I was introduced to poetry in undergrad my senior year after I broke my navicular bone at opening ceremonies in the Olympic Games and had to really start thinking about a different identity or an expansion of the identity that I had been cultivating at that point for 11 years. I was, I had played volleyball at a high level every day of my life from the age of 11 to the age of 22. And then my one and only injury was in this critical moment. And I had to really start thinking about who else I might be and what else about my personhood I might cultivate. Um, I very whimsically elected to take a creative writing class, mostly because the professor, I had some interactions with him on campus and he walked around and with uncombed hair and tie-dye shirts and Birkenstock sandals. And I just found him to be really lovely. And I was like, I'm just going to take whatever class he's teaching. I didn't know what he taught, but he was teaching creative writing. And so my experience in that class, it shifted everything for me. It it changed my trajectory. Uh, It changed my 
lexicon. Uh, it changed my consideration of the world and who I was going to be in the world. So I knew I was a writer, but the process of writing felt really, really personal to me. It felt private. It felt privileged. Um, it felt like it didn't belong to anyone but me. I just really expected to write volumes of things and share that with exactly no one. And I would die and, you know, my grandkids would find it and they'd be enamored posthumously with my, with my work. But Colorado, Denver in particular, they, they have a very successful writers community. Every international competition that exists, someone representing Colorado has won it. And so I had these friends that were going to venues and they were performing their poems out loud all the time. And I would be there to support them. And I'd be sitting furtively in the back writing and no intention of reading anything ever. And they knew I was writing in the back of the room and they just started pressuring me to say things out loud, to try it, to just risk something. Uh, and after it was, it took about two years of that. And then I finally started reading things out loud. And from there, it was just inexplicable because it was like, I was getting a lot of attention, gaining a lot of traction. My work was, people were really resonating with it. I didn't expect any of that. Like I knew, I know I'm good on my feet. I know I'm, I, I know I'm a good speaker. I have no shyness around public speaking or anything like that. I can do all kinds of impromptu stuff and be really comfortable, right? But I still didn't expect for my poetry to resonate with folks the way that it did or for my performances to resonate with folks the way that it did. So that's what I mean by accidental poet. I had no vision of this for myself, but because of the writers that I'm relative to, they pressured me to try and I tried and it, it changed my life. And you said you started writing at 22 yep. and then you started sharing it at 34. So what was that incubation period like? It was sort of the, the necessary soul work that I think you have to do if you're someone like me who practiced a fair amount of secret keeping or gatekeeping or you know, if you're just even a person who your conditioning is such that the harder parts of your story are the things that you always try to tuck back, you know, there is a process. If you elect to start speaking and naming and sharing those things, you need to ready your spirit for that first. It has nothing to do with the craft. It has everything to do with you know, do you do you have the emotional stability to name these things in a room and not be concerned about whatever happens after that? That takes a long time. For me, it took a really long time because, you know, I I was concerned about being regarded as a victim. I really had no interest in that. I was concerned about interrupting certain elements of, of my family structure because these are not people who bleed out loud ever, 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 ever. And here I am, you know, bleeding out loud. So there were certain things that I had to ready myself for. And that incubation period was that. It was about making sure that I was 100% okay with my story, everything. Things done to me, things that I did to others, all of it. The, the legacy of brutality um, when I was a little girl at the hands of my stepfather, all that. I had to be okay with all of it naming all of it in a room and doing it over and over and over and over again. That's what that incubation period was. So your words go straight. They, they pierce, you know, the, the soul and the heart and the brain and um, the, the intellect. Uh, can you talk about how you transmitted those experiences from your youth into these? Uh, it, it's hard to, I mean, of course, they're beautiful words, but they're exactly what the purpose of art is designed to do. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I know it musically. I don't know the writing and the history like you do. Um, but that's exactly what all these composers from time immemorial and today are trying to say. And mm-hmm. you sort of do it just without even, it, it, it seems natural. I know you just talked about the incubation period. Mm-hmm. But can you talk about how you took those experiences, whether your own or those that came before you or others that you've witnessed in some way and transmitted that into something that moves people in a different way than than they would be just hearing about those experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I believe that language is a culture keeper. I have witnessed language when used deliberately and skillfully and poetically and lyrically change you know, the atoms in a room, shift consciousness, raise consciousness, take a person who walked into the room completely unconvinced that they should keep living and they, by the end of it, feel really dedicated and committed to their staying. I've seen language do that. I needed to have a relationship with language that was powerful and that belonged to me. Most of us, well, we all acquire language the same way. It's a borrowing and a co-opting. And that's not to indict anybody. That's just how we learn it. We Someone mimics things. They say a set, set of sounds. They put them together and they point to the thing. And so we know that set of sounds now means that object. And we, we develop language that way. But we also co-opt and borrow usage. So a lot of times if someone is misusing a word and it gets perpetuated, that word now it's misuse becomes a part of culture and we don't question it. And it's words that we don't even think to consider that sometimes are the most misused, you know, and I was uncomfortable with that. So I wanted to go back and have a very deliberate relationship with language because it was important for me, especially in the unpacking and the unearthing of the things that I was going to be unpacking and unearthing. I needed to know that I knew what I was saying, not think I knew what I was saying. That's really what it is for me. I just think I have a pretty good relationship with language. It feels very available to me. And so I try to use I try to, in my use, demonstrate over and over again how big language is and how much it can offer the, the, the listener, you know? I love how you talk about being an etymologist as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go into sort of the root cause of words and their derivations. For example, one of the words that you talk about, nice, nesheous, ignorant, mm-hmm. or neshire, not know, which is the opposite of what most of us think about. <laughs> can, can you think of a word... Um, that you discovered that shocked you the most that it had that? Nice was pretty shocking for me, but I, um, there's so many, I I could say from a, you know, a a cultural standpoint, this idea of invoking the word slave as a way to sort of language people that I borrow blood from, the unpacking of that word and realizing it has absolutely nothing to do with the people that I borrow blood from. Because slave comes from Slav, capital S, as in Slavic, as in they they really assigned that because of all of these wars, it then became, the, the meaning became conquered person. And that doesn't explain anybody that I come from. So it's that for me, it was very revelatory. It helped me identify myself in a wider way, right? In a bigger way, a more powerful, intentional way. There are words like um, choose and decide that are really important to me and that were really powerful to me in my parenting. And we use them as though they're interchangeable, but they're not. You know, words reveal themselves to you. And we know English is parented by languages that are older, right? And so when you see C-I-D-E as a suffix, 
in our in the English language, it tells you exactly what's going on, right? That's why you have, if I say homicide, suicide, fratricide, genocide, we know something's being killed off, right? The prefix tells you what's being killed off. The suffix tells you to kill off. That's literally in Latin what it means, side, C-I-D, okay? So if I say decide and choose are the same, that becomes problematic because when you decide a thing, it says fundamentally, I have elected this. And in electing this, I've killed off opportunities to elect anything else. But if I choose this and it doesn't work out, I can choose something else. So when I'm raising teenagers, a fundamental question becomes, you know, they would do goofy things. And I would just say, was that a decision or a choice? You know, did you lock yourself in in that moment or did you give yourself room to move differently? So I just, I love etymology. It's like, it's like language just becomes, it's a rebirthing of language. It's the relationship you think you know, and then it introduces itself to you in another way. And it's remarkable to me. You played, obviously you were an amazing volleyball player. You've raised some wonderful kids. Do you have any thoughts about kids deciding or choosing to play uh, sports versus into the arts? Or have you, obviously, you probably have a lot to say about that. Yeah, I do. You know, I am, so I'm a very tall person, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why volleyball found me. You were a very tall preacher on high maintenance. (laughs) Yeah, right? You can see that, right? Like I'm just like (laughs) hovering over everyone. So that's my life. And I have really tall children. They're all taller than I am. So when they were young, you know, like my daughter's 6'1". And she doesn't play sports. It's not who she is, right? Like, but she can pick up a stringed instrument and play it and and like and, and has a beautiful singing voice and she's Amazing. a wonderful poet. And like, right. And so, and my son Sally, who has like the perfect body for almost any, like he could be a wide receiver if he wanted to be. He could be, you know, he could, he could, he could play basketball and be amazing. He's an artist. He's a visual artist. That's incredible. Incredible painter. Right. So I I very quickly had to realize like the the woman that they met that was parenting them was not the volleyball player. She was the poet. They didn't meet the volleyball player. I had to tell them. I used to be a volleyball player. Probably saw some video. Yeah. So the woman that they were being parented by was the poet, was the artist. And I think that that made the choice for them. I think they were far more moved by that expression than by sports it's profound to me when i think about it you know because i always knew my like my dad played in the nba my grandfather's baseball hall of famer and i knew that my sister was dunking a ball in high school so i knew that sports legacy and really felt like i'm obligated to participate i'm 12 years old i'm six feet tall i gotta play something and i need to be great at it but that legacy was always so apparent in every room and i my children didn't have that they didn't have that mom was a poet you know? I'm I'm going to get a little jealous here because I, I, re, reading reading your story, um, it just it's funny how just different paths kind of right. parallels. Because I I was a very competitive baseball player into my second oh. year of college. Um, yeah. I didn't quite make the Olympics, but I was playing D three, you know, for yeah. more year. Um, and I was a pitcher, but I was only five nine. So and oh. you know anything about baseball? You you need that extra six uh-huh. foot. 511 uh-huh. to get that extra 10 miles per hour on your fastball. Yeah. And and it was in college when I discovered and it was because of one specific teacher really. Um and and I had always played music, you know, I played trombone and I played some piano and just for fun, but I wanted to play baseball and then my fallback was to be a doctor. So Oh, um, your fallback was to be a doctor. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's interesting how you have this this passion that is in volleyball or baseball or whatever it may be and it's the same fire. 
Yeah. All of a sudden I woke up one morning and it was replaced by music. Isn't that interesting how that happens? It's really fascinating. But you know what? Honestly, I have to say for me, just the context in which I was born and in which I was raised, you had to be exceptional. So no matter what it was that you were going to be doing, if it was going to be art, be exceptional. Um, if it was music, be exceptional. I mean, I had that. I, I have to name that because I could have tried my hand at any number of things, but I had a mother and grandparents that were going to make sure I was going to be really good at it, period. Like there was no opportunity to be mediocre ever. Your poetry is very musical in its scope, its rhythm, its feel. What kind of musical relationships have shaped your work and your life? Ooh. So my mother would play classical music on the piano all the time. We all had to do something. My grandmother made us all play a musical <laughs> instrument. So my mother would do that. And my mother used music as a way to language her melancholy. Because I, I told you, you know, I don't come from people who bleed out loud. I always knew my mother was sad based on the music in the house. Whatever she was playing on the piano or whatever she was humming at the sink, my grandmother did the exact same thing. If she was sit sitting at, well, she was standing at the sink washing dishes, the song she was singing would tell you what kind of day she was having. And so, you know, if she was singing Motherless Child at the sink, you just knew it was sadness draped around her. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. motherless child Sometimes I feel Like a motherless child, motherless child. Sometimes I feel Like a motherless child, motherless child. A long ways from home so I had this interesting thing where my family all there they were all musical. Everybody was would, would burst out into song. Or my grandfather was exceptional in that way too. You know, the baseball player would also just break out in song and poetry all the time. So there was always this relationship that music and poetry could communicate that which you might find difficult to language on your own. So jazz, classical music. Old school R&B like Marvin Gaye, nice. um, you know, uh, my mother is an Al Green fan, wow. freaking, so nice. like, like becomes Great. a fangirl. It's devastating to watch the, the professor turn into the, the fangirl when Al Green is on television, but she will turn into a fangirl, okay? I just saw that music was being used to language the melancholy or the mood in my home as I was growing up. And to learn how to use your voice, your voice is an instrument, right? And your voice should be able to do the exact same thing. So depending on, my grandmother was exceptional at teaching vocal performance and how to hold your mouth and how to stretch and elongate notes, right? And so you figured out how to even make your own singing voice communicate your melancholy or your vibrance and your, you know, frolic. You, you could just do all of that. And that was taught to me in my home. Can you talk about how that informed your process for writing and delivering material? And is there any improvisation yeah. involved in that? Tons, but I really, I hear it in my head before it's, it's written down. And there is this, it, it has to be lyrical. I need to find the rhythm in the work. I don't believe in writer's block, but if I did, it would have something to do with interrupting that necessary rhythm. 
there were things that used to interrupt that necessary rhythm for me, but it was tied to, again, that the sort of the old habit of secret keeping and wondering if I should be telling those stories or telling it that way, or, you know, that kind of thing would always sort of interrupt the rhythm of the thing that I wanted to say. I conquered that though. I don't do that. I don't get in the way of the words anymore, but there is a relationship. It certainly aided me in, in performance because there are brilliant, brilliant writers. And I say this all the time. I, I'm friends with, I mean, exceptional writers, right? And linguists who couldn't win a slam to save their lives. Because you have to be able to bring those that language forward in a room and we respond to music. And so if you are being, if you're able to deliver your work musically, the audience resonates with you more than they do someone else who's a little bit more staccato and choppy the words might be beautiful, but it's not being transmitted that way. If the words or the poetry is being created by someone, you would naturally think that they could yeah. recite it. Yeah, uh, but they can't. a lot of people can't. Yeah, and this is musically too, like mm -hmm. Beethoven trying mm -hmm. to conduct his music was a disaster. Right, <laughs> isn't that so interesting? It's really fascinating to me, but it just means that there are some folks who their work is intended for the page and not the stage or that they need someone else to deliver it on the stage. A lot of folks, astonishingly, really struggle with performance. They're able to create and curate something really beautiful, but they're not always skilled at being able to offer it in a room in a way that gives people an opportunity to value the work. Good things I could say about you, girl. I could say that I Why is the term radical so jarring to people in the arts and in, in general? I think because it suggests that something is being interrupted or broken or it makes things more flammable. Or it makes it appear that they're more flammable, I think. The idea of being radical means you're not really being traditional, right? I mean, it means you're not being... Uh, you're not necessarily operating in the tradition of something that's softer and quieter. But sometimes the most radical thing you can do is to be still and listen. You know, I think we need to really reimagine the use of that word. It shouldn't be so jarring. Sometimes the most radical thing you can do is to be soft, to be nurturing, to be caring, to be empathetic, right? To keep your heart open, to keep your hands open. That's radical. It's radical stuff. It doesn't, it's not the smashing of things, the breaking of things, the, you know, the, the setting of fi setting fires. It's not. The, the most radical stuff is to lead with love despite, right? In spite of, to be human, to remain human. When there's so many opportunities for you to be brutish or disconnected from your heart, to remain available is radical, I think. Yeah. talk about some of your classical inspirations like Emily Dickinson or Edgar Allan Poe. How do you balance those cultural influences on your life with poets of today? You no, know, I, I just wish more, more contemporary writers 
particularly contemporary writers of color, I just wish that they knew that they have a relationship with Edgar Allan Poe. I wish they knew that they have a relationship with Shakespeare. I wish they knew that they have a relationship with T.S. Eliot and E.E. E. Cummings I, I, and with Dickinson and with Sylvia Plath. And I, I just wish they knew it. When it's presented to you in a certain way, it just feels like it's not yours. It, has, it doesn't have anything to do with you. I wish that folks would introduce canonical works in a way that helps people understand that those things are canonical because there's something timeless about them, right? It transcends era and race and, and circumstance. It, it, it does. That's why they're canonical. That's why they're in the canon. They were radical. Right, and they were radical. I'm always moved by canonical works because, again, I'm interested in language presenting itself to me over and over again in new ways. And how Edgar Allan Poe wrote is not like anyone else on the planet. He moves me. He moves my relationship with language forward. E.E. Cummings moves my relationship with language and punctuation forward, you know? And T.S. Eliot moves. I mean, I just find them to be so very necessary because in the 1800s, how you were communicating a thing is not how you communicated in 2020, but the language is so big and so valuable and I want to keep it with us. I really do. 2020 was supposed to be Beethoven's 250th birth anniversary. As universal as I've always thought his music is. It's incredible for me to see for all the articles that are celebrating and all the commentary that's extolling the virtues of the music of Beethoven, the universality of it, there's articles that are kind of against him, like this is just the old stuff. There's nothing new about this. His music is very chauvinistic. There's this kind of push and pull in the symphonic orchestra world. Um, why are you playing music that was written 200 years ago? Interesting. When there are living composers today. Do, do you find that dilemma in the poetry or the writing world? Yeah, I think that I think that school of thought exists uh, in writing as well. I think that there are plenty of poets and writers who wish that we would sort of stop. I mean, I know that they want us to stop teaching these things. They don't know why they're still regarded as useful or relevant, and they want them to be replaced by more contemporary writers, more contemporary authors. I do not want that. I don't think that you, you need to make sure that you are offering enough in the curriculum that there are plenty of contemporary artists, uh, contemporary authors and writers, but I do not in any way advocate for the replacement of that which came before. I just don't. Like my philosophical orientation is I know where I'm going because I know what came before me. So I can't remove those relationships. Those relationships informed me, period. They did. Even the ones we wish didn't or the ones that now, because we can sort of sit on our more liberal lofty perches and stuff and kind of go, that was chauvinistic when they wrote that or that's problematic. And, you know, I get I get that we get to critique all of those things from that place. There are plenty of canonical writers that I love whose race politics probably are not great. Right. I'm OK with that. I'm okay with that. I really am. I'm okay with that. Because I also need space for, for evolution to happen, for people to be able to transcend their own thinking. And what a straight white male was writing in 1800 probably does have some problematic stuff attached to it in terms of how I, my body, right? But how they are languaging things and how they are communicating their melancholy or their angst is deeply necessary for me because I'm constantly looking for all the permission in the known universe 
to do the same thing with my own story. So no, I'm not interested in replacing Beethoven or Edgar Allan Poe or anyone ever. They're necessary. We need them. We need them. You have a relationship with music in part because you have a relationship with Beethoven, even if it is to hate him. You have a relationship with music because of him. He played a part. So no, I don't want to put anyone away. I'd love for everyone to be in the room at the same time. to upset the status quo or to make something beautiful? I think art is provocation. That's what I think. I think art is, is intended to provoke, to interrupt, to inspire, to communicate, again, that which is so difficult sometimes, to communicate, to invite folks to remain human, to invite folks to be supernatural. Art is provocation. It is a necessary thing. To me, art is how you answer back to politics. Because I think politics use language to hide, to lie, to misinform. And I think the job of the artist is to tell the truth, to unpack that, to name, to unname, to rename. How do artists get politicians to listen? I don't think the world is any good without art. I think it becomes very st a very sterile, frigid, cold place in the absence of art. You cannot have a world that exists purely on politics and machinery. And, you know, uh, there has to be something that allows us to be perfectly human. And I think art is what does that. And politicians need people. They need people. And I would hope that they still want people to be intact. I think art is what gives us that. It's why when you're sad or when you're happy, you have you turn on music. It's organic. You do it. You do it in your car. You dance alone in your kitchen when you're cooking. You do those things because you need it. You need it. Politicians need us and we need that. That's the relationship. I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget that although art is a reflection of ourselves, the politicians are too. And I think you said this somewhere that we are culpable, right? For everything oh, that is done, Absolutely. all of us are responsible, whether that yeah. be in a democracy or a yeah. dictatorship. Everything. We had a hand in it, period. We're all authoring this story. That's just a fact. Like, I mean, we are. We are all authoring this story. Every bit of it, even the stuff we're offended by, we've played a part. It's why for me, certain movements, uh, I don't participate in them because I find that they didn't think about the unintended consequences. They just came up with something snappy and they didn't think about the unintended consequences of invoking that phrase or, you know what I mean? Institutionalizing that, uh, you know, they didn't think about it, but I think about it and I want to be willful and I want to be a deliberate person on the planet and I want to be a safe person on the planet. We are all culpable for all of it.
This has been a, a challenging time for artists, uh, but everybody. Uh, what, what have you done to get your family through it and to get your friends through it mm-hmm. and to continue creating? I write every day, no matter what's going on, even when I don't want to or when I'm sad or busy or tired. My relationship with writing is the same as my relationship with eating and sleeping. I have to do it, right? Or I'll die. So that's how I treat it. It's not a thing I'm dabbling in. It's not, you know, like if I can carve out the space, I might do a little something. Nope, I do it. I do it every day. And I practice that and I model that for everyone else in my life. It permissions them to do certain things that way too, to have a relationship with the thing that will save them that it doesn't have to be a thing that you set aside in the margins and you'll get to it if there's room enough in your day, but that in fact, you can insist on these parts of who you are. They are important, they're necessary, they're urgent, and they tell you who you are, they're your way back home. And you've been doing that since you were 22. I was 22. I had notepads resting on my stomach while I was having babies, writing things down. And then every baby I had got earphones so they could hear music you know, as soon as they got here. So no, yeah, I'm consistent in that way. That's what I'm doing. I'm participating in my own magic and I'm being in the service of my gifts and I'm modeling that. What music have your kids taught you? My daughter is the one that constantly introduces me to things that I had not heard before uh, and would not have considered. Uh, it wouldn't have, they just, it, they wouldn't have reached me. They reach her, you know, um, <laughs> as an angsty guitar playing millennial, you know, there, she has a very folksy, she has a penchant for, for folk songs, you know, she loves to also reimagine and reinvent the old stuff. You know, she'll take a Janis Joplin song and make it new and make it sound sweet where Janice kind of had that hard punch. You know, my daughter has this lilting baby bird voice, makes everything sound safe, you know, and soft. So when she sings artists that have this edge, it changes, I mean, like the, whole, the texture of the song changes dramatically, you know? You hear things in the song that just, you, you didn't even know they were there. She's the one that introduces me to the most stuff. She, the group Daughter, gorgeous stuff, haunting stuff, perfect for melancholy, but also perfect for gratitude. I think the most recent thing that I've been listening to from her or that she introduced me to rather, is uh, the group Moonchild? Do you know that ch- that group? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, you gotta, you gotta okay. go. I'll gotta check go out Daughter and Moonchild. Daughter and Moonchild. I'm serious. It's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff, and not just musically beautiful, but lyrically beautiful. That these are these are beautiful writers communicating things in amazing ways. Yeah. If you leave. friend it's morning we made it what will we do now with this amazing improbable flesh in this amazing miraculous moment 
What will we do upon waking with these hands, with this day? What will we do with the ticking of our impossible hearts? There is an elegance in simplicity, the cracking crimson of sunrise, the cosmic earth with bulbs and pods huddling under the fire of summer, each plant surrendering to omnipotent heat, the clouds sugared pink held up by the wide hands of trees, their green beards frosted in occasional mist that transcribe the beginning of the world, limb by limb, this thunderous wisdom, this old knowing adorned in celestial confection, the pollen promenade of bees in fat stripes of black and gold, they meet each flower with adoration. Can you hear it? The subterranean psalm of endless earth, plural, fertile, knowing, the midday chorus of hummingbirds, the pageantry of butterflies, a deliberate symphony of color, do you hear it? The green leaf orchestra of holy basil, the dense brigade of echinacea, the haloed remarkable geometry of it all, ephemeral, ecstatic, can you hear it? Every atom in our body seeks to sing similar praise, the sprawl and fullness of, the wonder and vigor of, each supernatural bloom, the old anarchy of growing and becoming, no matter how walloped by wind. And that is the metaphor that matters to me the most. The Herculean smolder of June, that slips yellow and green over everything, the blazing finesse of creation that we are conjoined to, the symphonic ritual of root, the mountains in the distance, and you, translator of unabridged rock, what will you do with this moment and how colossal it is? How will you be companion to the sudden radiance of so wild and perfect a love? My little boy says, yellow is the sound of God. He knows the earth is cathedral, a kingdom of color and rumble. He occupies his body the way poppies do, profound in confronting heat and night and storm, sprouting anyway, synthesizing the sun, unafraid, stentorian, holy, awake in all of the places we can be. And this is what I'll tell my children when the world feels too busy. I'll say, listen for the sorcery of wind, the thick wet breeze of morning, the sudden upswing of early fruit and earth and water, the scripture of sky, that is all we need to know of heaven. Every cell in our bodies, mammoth with creation. The creeks that crackle with rainbow trout all, waiting for us to awaken, to strut and dance until our limbs are savagely young, completely free. It's a connection older than words. And that's what I'll tell my children. I'll say, open your eyes, you're awake now. What magic will you make with this moment and what miracles can be performed only by you? And what are you waiting for? It's morning, you made it. Open your eyes.
for the gathered faithful, the ones whose blood moves relentlessly on, for the ones who wish to be important and the ones who know they already are, and for the ones who've craned their necks over the sharp edges of midnight, who dream their impossible lives can be fat with a sugared revolution, I know you. I know you've been keeping stars in your eyes and I know daggers have been at your throats. I know you practiced the forgetting of fear. For the ones who were never told that they are worthy of every good and perfect thing, the ones who hustle and scrap and scrape and keep their back straight, I know it's not easy. I know how hard you try to live a life that has enough good people in it who will look you in the eye, call you by your name. I know you never meant to be so symbolic, so sacrificial, all of you with your faith that all of this has been a rehearsal. Listen, you're not charity cases, not victims, not history's bad luck accident. So to the holding on ones, the deliberate ones, the trying ones, the soon and very soon ones, just praise. Praise your body and the way you woke up this morning. Praise the miracle and the mess. Praise the language you were born with and the ones you're learning. Praise the opening of the gate. Praise the child you were and the adult you are becoming. Praise the becoming. Praise the journey. Praise the fight. Praise the wherewithal. Praise the riding of wind without asking permission. Praise the universe in your ribcage. Praise the trench that taught you about darkness and praise the day you danced in the light. Praise the laughter that lives in your belly. Praise the gardens you can plant in your bones. Praise the bamboo your spine can become. Praise the stories you've kept and the ones you didn't. Praise your resurrection. Praise your mouth, your wide open mouth for how confessional it is. Your straight back, your unbowed head. Praise the atoms and the cells that make your body cathedral and praise that there is so much of you left. And praise the otherworldly algorithm that is your heart, especially that. Revolution is the sound of your heart still beating. So praise. I love that. Your uh, revolution is the sound of your heart still beating. That's a theme that you mm -hmm. seem to return to. I do. Well, because I think sometimes we think that there has to be this big momentous, these, these big, huge, mountain-esque momentous moments in our lives that we're supposed to be participating in or contributing to, and that that's what we call radical, or that's what we call revolution. And to me, again, it's not that at all. It's so revolutionary for you to be alive, for you to remain alive. For you to wake up in the morning and remember your name and the names of the people that you love, you know, to be willful about participating in your own existence is revolution to me. It's not, it doesn't have to be again, you know, the pitchforks, the signs, the protests. That's not radical to me. That's noisy to me. It's performative to me. But radical acts, revolutionary acts are the ones where in the midst of barbarism, in the midst of people being as brutish and as awful as it gets, you remain human, you remain open, 
you try your best to be as whole and intact as possible. And you remember to sing songs that make you smile or make you remember what falling in love was like. And you just practice that, you participate in that over and over again. That's revolutionary to me. Yeah. yeah. That's something that is incredible um, to, to be just having your heart right now. Um, as we go into the holiday where uh, it's, it's just a different holiday than anybody, than most Isn't people it? have gone through. And, yeah. um, and just, just, there's so many things because of the pandemic that it's just like, I've never realized how amazing, I mean, just, just making music with a group full mm -hmm. of people, just bring that to life and Isn't that something? an audience there. Um, but this word that, that of praise, like that, that word, it just, it just really, filled me up and it got me thinking about what is the what is the etymology of that phrase like where does it praise is latin i think it's i think it's middle eastern and i actually think it has something to do with assigning value or setting mm -hmm. a value to a thing so when you're praising this thing it's the acknowledgement of how valuable it is mm -hmm. the etymology of that word is to sort of operate in the acknowledgement of what the value of a thing is yeah. And sometimes I think it's interesting that you say that because sometimes I think we forget what, what exactly we value. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> what That's is important. Exactly right. Yeah. I'm guilty of that. But the thing is, is that in the pandemic, it gives you a profound opportunity to sort of recalibrate and pay attention to that, which is important. There are plenty of people who didn't know that they needed other people until this pandemic. Mm -hmm. They were really operating with the idea that they were good on their own, be isolated, isolation, whatever. It's not true. It's not true. And they found it out. They found it out inconveniently, but they found it out. And so now you know how much you value the, these moments where you can touch somebody, where you can be in a room with someone, sharing your gifts in a room and seeing how that gift, you know, is held within all these different bodies because we're not getting to do that in the same way right now. You know, I was really kind of like travel weary and walloped from performing. And then yeah, yeah. pandemic happened and I was like, yeah. man, I miss you know, it all just yeah. shut down everything. Yeah, I'm, I, I, it's an interesting, like, um, feeling of we're isolated from everybody, but we're all isolated from everybody at the exact same time. Like we're all in concert in harmony for the that's first right. time that's right. in some way. It's profound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no, like, I was just, I was walking in the park and I was thinking of somebody speaking on the phone, I thought I overheard them saying, there's this virus. And I'm like, who are you talking to and telling this? <laughs> right, that like, doesn't there, know that, right, there right. Is no, unless he's talking to Mars or not right. Mars, it would have to be a different solar system. Yeah, life is different now. And I just hope that we hold it, the clarity responsibly and that we really, we, seriously, that we, we do the necessary recalibration to recognize how much in fact we do need each other, how reliant we are upon one another and your wellness contributes to my wellness you know if something that's a detriment to you it probably is a detriment to me it harms me in some way if you don't get to be in the participation of your gifts it harms me in some way I think we're clearer about that now I hope we're clearer about that now yeah well, well if there's any artist who's bringing people together and making us realize what is valuable in life, it, it's you. So I, I really appreciate all the amazing things you're putting out there and the transformation you're sh of yourself that you're constantly sharing with the world. Uh, so, so it's been such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today, Dominique. Oh, likewise, likewise. I hope you have an amazing day. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thank you to Dominique Christina for sharing her amazing performances of its morning and praise poem. Shout out to all the amazing musicians and performers who made this episode possible and their record labels. Motherless Child was performed by O.V. Wright on Geffen Records. Simply Beautiful comes from Al Green's I'm Still in Love with You by Fat Possum. Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata was performed by Daniel Barenborn. Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye is on Motown Records, a division of UMG Recordings, Incorporated. Shallows is from If You Leave by Daughter from Glass Note Entertainment. Daughter and a world artist's love. The Other Side is from Little Ghost, performed and distributed by Moonchild and Entertainment One. You can find Dominique Christina's books, including Anarcha Speaks and This Is Woman's Work, on all platforms wherever books are sold. Thank you for joining us. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.